Right, uh, how is all doing? This is Ian Lynch and this is the first episode of the Fire Draw Near Wild Rover podcast. So just to give you a bit of background in case you never listened to the show before, basically Fire Draw Near is a monthly show where I look at the, the Irish tradition, Irish traditional singing, Irish traditional music and sometimes draw connections between disparate traditions from other countries and other musical genres. So last March, I wanted to step up the technical side of the radio show, I suppose. So I splashed out on a musical interface, got a new microphone. I started to learn how to use Pro Tools. And I kind of got so wrapped up in just messing around with Pro Tools before I knew I had half of this documentary made. And I just decided to kind of fire ahead. And in the end, I ended up with like a three episode history of the song, The Wild Rover. And that's what you're listening to now. So um, thanks a million for tuning in and I really hope you enjoy this first episode. Um, You know, obviously at the time I was still getting used to using Pro Tools, still didn't really have a clue what I was doing. So there might be a bit of discrepancy between the different episodes in sound quality and things like that, but I think it's still very listenable. I hope so anyway. Um, if you want to check out Anton, I do look up www.campsite forward slash bio forward slash fire draw near. Um, that's basically everything I do on the internet is up there. And I'll leave it at that, right? Enjoy the show. beyond a doubt, one of the most popular and enduring traditional songs of our time. One of the few to have crossed that hazy border which separates the folk song enthusiast from the average member of the public. One of those songs that represents many different things to many different people. It's perhaps best known as a sing-along song in Irish-themed pubs the world over, and it seems like absolutely everyone knows the words whether they like it or not. Some have even gone so far as to call it Ireland's second national anthem, and for better or for worse, I would say it's a safe bet that more people know the words to the Wild Rover. A few years ago, I was part of a gang of people who sang an impromptu version of it live on Nigerian national TV during the 2004 Africa Cup of Nations, which was taking place in Tunisia. We were asked to sing a song on the spot, and being Irish at a football tournament, it seemed like a good choice. Thinking back on it now, it was probably one of the only Irish songs that we could all sing. As a piece of music, The Wild Rover has been performed and recorded by artists as diverse as the Dropkick Murphys, Irish metal band Cruacon. No, never, no more. No, never, no more. 
Foster and Allen. I went into an alehouse I used to frequent And I told the landlady me money was spent I asked her for credit, she answered me nay Such a custom as yours I can have any day Stiff little fingers the even triple Irish Eurovision winner Johnny Logan The list just goes on and on and on One of the things that connects these renditions of the song is that they are all sung, to one degree or another, in a defiant and sometimes even raucous manner, reflecting the common perception that the song is a celebration of drinking, even while the chorus insists that the protagonist never will play the Wild Rover no more. Videos on YouTube are often situated in the pub, where pints of Guinness are raised in a conspicuously celebratory manner, and the musicians performatively swagger with mock drunken braggadocio. It would appear that to a lot of people, this is the Irish drinking anthem. For a song that started off life as a proselytising ballad of temperance, urging its audience not to be bad husbands, to work hard and not waste their earnings on alcohol, this is a very strange turn of events. Another thing that all of these modern versions have in common, which is even more remarkable, is that all of them, without fail, stem from one iconic version, recorded in 1963. Itself a patchwork of many different versions of a much older ballad, the story behind the song and how it evolved into the piece of music that we all know today will take us on a journey all over the English-speaking world and back again. But first, we must go back in time to 17th century England where the song appeared in its first incarnation. I'm Ian Lynch, and this is the Fire Draw Near podcast. The story behind the Wild Rover takes us back over 350 years and I think it can teach us many things about how, in a time long before any digital or even wireless technology, songs could migrate around the English-speaking world with ease, shifting from the printed word into the mouths of a public hungry for new songs, and from there, back into print again, transforming and changing all the while, ever mercurial. Its origins ultimately lie in a type of song that has become known as the Alehouse Ballad. But, before we get into that, we need to look at the culture that gave rise to it, namely the alehouse culture of early modern England. By 
By the middle of the 16th century, alehouses were to be found all over the length and breadth of England, be it in city, town or village. Not only that, but their importance was being consolidated and they began to emerge as a key institution in society. By this stage, three types of public house had become well established in the country. First of all was the inn, which would generally have been a larger, purpose-built establishment in the towns, a place where the weary traveller could find lodging, stabling and refreshment. Then there was the tavern, which was more explicitly geared towards the consumption of alcohol amongst the middle and upper classes. Last of all was the alehouse, the most humble of all the drinking houses. Selling low-cost ale to the poorest in society, it might often just consist of a room in a private dwelling into which some benches had been placed. To give an idea of the numbers involved, by 1577 it's estimated that there was about 24,000 alehouses in England. By the year 1700, this number had increased more than twofold to 58,000, and there seems to be good evidence that this is something that worried the authorities. Men like Sir Richard Grosvenor, first baronet and politician who sat in Westminster in the 1620s. According to Grosvenor, alehouses were the very bane of this country, a receptacle for knaves and harlots. The robber's council chamber, the beggar's nursery, the drunkard's academy, the thieves' sanctuary. Here are you deprived of the obedience of your sons, of the duty of your servants. Others, like the pamphleteer Richard Rawledge, took it upon themselves to attack the institution of the alehouse from a purely moral standpoint. There are, I dare say, above 30 hundred alehouses, tippling houses, tobacco shops, etc. in London and the skirts thereof, wherein the devil is daily served and honoured. These contemporary views are elaborated upon by historian Peter Clarke. There was a broad consensus of opinion among the middling and to some extent the upper ranks of society in Tudor and early Stuart England that alehouses were a new and increasingly dangerous force in popular society, that they were run by the poor for the poor, victualling and harbouring the destitute and vagrant, breeding crime, disorder and drunkenness, fostering promiscuity and other breaches of orthodox morality and that they served as a stronghold of popular opposition to the established religious and political order. Other historians, such as Mark Halewood, author of Alehouses and Good Fellowship in Early Modern England, point towards the fact that this condemnation often occurred along class lines, and that the alehouse offered far more than escape via alcoholic oblivion. It could, for example, provide rudimentary lodgings for travellers, maybe a bench, or even a bed shared with the alehouse keeper and his wife. Food was often available, as was takeaway beer for locals who were unable to brew at home. And as a venue, it could act as a relatively safe setting for courtship, or for the amicable settling of disputes between neighbours. 
Financially speaking, they also acted as important centres of economic exchange, a place where goods were traded, where business deals were transacted, and where employment was inquired after. Not only that, but the alehouse keeper could also act as a pawnbroker and provide credit to the local poor. Up until the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, communal celebrations centred around calendar custom and rites of passage, which, it must be said, usually involved the consumption of ale, had taken place upon church property at various times of the year. But it was the alehouse which now became a place where these celebrations could take place. It was all of these factors that led to the institution of the alehouse to be recognised as a central place in the village society of pre-industrial England. Most significantly, it enabled a very important process of social bonding, namely, participation in a particular type of recreation that contemporaries refer to as good fellowship. Good fellowship was the name given to a type of celebratory idiom which alehouse culture gave rise to. It emphasised merriment, liberality, conviviality and affectionate social bonds. The mores and values of good fellowship were expressed in what has come to be referred to as drink literature, that is, printed items that were explicitly designed to reach out to the humble alehouse goer. Unsurprisingly, one of drink literature's most widespread mediums was the broadside ballad. The broadside ballad was a single sheet of paper printed on one side only and unfolded. Originally, the term ballad referred to the actual slip of paper itself rather than the song that was printed on it. In many ways the precursor to modern day newspapers, these cheaply produced prints contained news, proclamations and popular narratives, as well as songs, and it would seem that their production and dissemination was already well established in England by the mid 16th century. At this stage they are sometimes referred to as black letter ballads because of the heavy gothic font they invariably employed, and they would have usually been sold for a penny the same price as a loaf of bread or a pint of ale. Love, marriage, debt, executions, politics, religion, morality, old age, occupational identities, vagrancy and fashion were all subjects that they touched upon. Alongside these pressing issues of the day, the alehouse ballads fit in neatly, underlining again the importance of the alehouse in society at the time. Sociable drinkers, aka the good fellows, were the intended consumers of these ballads, and sociable drinking was the intended context for that consumption. They were not just abstract representations of drinking rituals and practices, but instead they were meant to supplement them. Listen to the final verse of the song Good Ale for My Money, for example, where the narrator calls for the assembled crowd to buy them beer. Dead by the singer to be. A 
trust none of this company will hear with be offended. If I call you chucks a piece and drink to him that pendant. Such was the connection between ballads like this and the alehouse culture that gave rise to them, that ballads were often pasted to the very walls. Something that can be seen in artistic depictions of the alehouse, as well as contemporary descriptions from people like Isaac Walton, who described in the 1650s An honest alehouse, where we shall find a cleanly room, lavender in the windows, and twenty ballads stuck about the wall. With regards to surviving evidence of alehouse ballads, we have two significant collections from the period. The Roxburgh collection consists of 1,341 ballads, which were collected by Robert Harley, the Earl of Oxford. This collection later came into the possession of John Kerr, the third Duke of Roxburgh, after whom it's named. The Pepys collection is the larger of the two, and of its 1,700 ballads, about 10% were designated as drinking or good fellowship ballads by Samuel Pepys himself. Incidentally, Pepys seems to have been rather fond of a drink, and in 1653, while still at college in Cambridge, he was punished for being drunk. So what was the idiom of good fellowship as extolled in these ballads? In songs like Here's to Thee, Kind Harry, which was printed around 1627, the values of good fellowship are laid out. He faces economic hardship with patience, fortitude and good cheer, all necessary prerequisites for his inclusion in the company of good fellows. Not only this, but there is also a suspension of sorrow and despair as he declines to bring his external cares into the alehouse with him. Some ballads, 
like a health to all good fellows, provided a clear framework for how drinking amongst such company was to take place. Here we see clear instructions in the words For he that made one made two, for he that made two made three, all the way up to For he that made twelve made thirteen. This appears to be related to the pastime called drinking for a muggle, whereby each person in a circle had to drink a pint more than the person before them. We can clearly see that this was not just a song to sing, but also a song to drink to, showing that there was often a performative aspect to the alehouse ballads. Not all of the alehouse ballads describe the consumption of alcohol in such celebratory ways, however, and a lot of them call forth attention to the negative aspects of good fellowship. In these songs, the good fellow is portrayed as the bad husband, a selfish man who wastes his money in the alehouse and often leaves his wife and family hungry. For example, in the song, I tell you John Jarrett, you will break. Your eyes up in morning before break it day Then unto ill house you straight make your way Were you in base manner at shuffleboard play Till you have wasted your money away While in a pleasant new song, which was printed around 1622 the narrator warns his audience against good fellowship and points to the precarious and transient nature of the alehouse community. Thou thinkest good fellows be thy friends And what thou hast on them thou spends What thou by work against all the week Consumeth by good fellowship But when all the money is gone And scorn or credit thou hast none These friends will from thee away will slip and farewell all good fellowship. One song, which was printed around 1630, was entitled A Good Fellow's Complaint Against a Strong Beer. And in this, we can see some of the motifs that would prove so enduring that they are still being sung as a part of the Wild Rover today. For example, the singers lament for all the material comforts they have lost through spending money on drink as well as the image of the callous alehouse keeper, whose hospitality lasts only as long as the protagonist's financial solvency. I once enjoyed both house and land, but now tis otherwise you'll see. My money spent, my clothes are pawned, and tis strong beer that has undone me. When I had coin, no tapster durst refuse to trust me.
Michelin's tree, but now they'll see my money first, because strong beer hath undone me. So while the actual ancestor to the Wild Rover didn't appear until the 1670s, we can see that by that time, many of its central themes would have already been well known to the ballad-savvy public. One man who was obviously familiar with these themes was Thomas Lanfier of Somerset in the south of England. Although he wrote romantic verses and sensationalist pieces such as The Strange Bear in Hampshire, his speciality seemed to have been alehouse ballads and he wrote songs like The Goodfellow's Frolic, The Goodfellow's Consideration and A Warning Piece for All Wicked Livers. Unsurprisingly, these ballads show that he was firmly on the side of the moralists and one Victorian editor remarked that he seems to have loved well the utterance of warnings against improvidence and excess in tavern haunting. Towards the end of the 1670s, he wrote a song entitled The Good Fellow's Resolution, or The Bad Husband's Return from His Folly, being a caveat for all spendthrifts to beware of the main chance. And the first verse of this song should be recognisable to everyone. Bad husband, this full fifteen year, and spent many pounds in good ale and strong beer. I've ranted in alehouses day after day, and wasted my time and my money away. But now beware, and I'll have a great care. Left at the last, poverty falls to my share. For now I will lay up my money in store. And never I will play the bad husband no more. I am Ian Lynch, and this has been part one of the Fire Draw Near Wild Rover podcast. Performers in order of appearance were Cormac Dermody, Adrian Edwards, Paul Denman, Beanie Entwistle, Joe York. Rady Pete and Marshall Morris the Travelling Woodsman of the Fosway Thanks a million to all of them The podcast would not have been the same without their contributions Thanks also to Brian Peters Kerry Ava McCormick and Ian Perkins <laughs> <laughs>